We're on the back side of Eastern Camp 2016. More than halfway done. I considered the theme. I thought, how many words were spoken by Christ? Relevant messages, convicting messages, parables, all kinds of things. How many relevant words are in the Bible, Old Testament and New, by apostles? But I kept being convicted by the Spirit to consider those things that were unspoken. There's something really beautiful about unspoken communication. How many of you came here this week and saw people you haven't seen for a few days, a few weeks, a few months, or maybe a year, and you embraced them? You might not even have said a word, but you embraced them. And that simple embrace transmitted an enormous amount of emotion and impact and love and feeling. All without a word. Unspoken. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day, for this week, for this group of people, believers, people that are interested, people that don't know you at all, young and old, we're thankful for the presence of your spirit this week and the messages and forums and lessons and songs and just the camaraderie and spirit of fellowship that we share. It's an amazing experience to be here. We pray, Lord, for your spirit to be here this evening, working through me, diminishing me and enhancing you. We pray for everyone here that already knows you, that there'll be something for them to glean from this message. And yet we know there are many here and many perhaps watching that don't know you yet or know you a little but cannot yet call you their Redeemer and their Lord. And we know, Lord, you have a plan for them too. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As this notion, this inspiration of the idea of unspoken really started to impact me, I thought of a verse in Romans 8, verse 26. Let me just read that verse by itself. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. That's talking about an unspoken prayer. 
When you're in a, a place of infirmity or affliction or difficulty, you're in a situation where you don't even know where to begin. You can't even begin to utter the words and many of you, if not all of you, have been there. Frustration, pain, illness, whatever it is. And you just sit there before the Lord and you can't even speak. And I have to admit to you that I really never read this verse as accurately as I should have until this week when I pondered it. I always felt like this verse meant that when I can't utter the words and I'm groaning in the Spirit, the Spirit then interprets that to the Father. But that's not quite right. It says, For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. We can't come up with the words. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. The Spirit is the one that takes our unavailable words, our unspoken prayer, the Spirit takes that and doesn't say, okay, I'm going to translate for you to the Father. No, the Spirit takes that unspoken utterance that you can't even come up with because you're so lost and so hurting, and the Spirit groans. Groanings which cannot be uttered. Now you say, well, what's the difference? Here's what's interesting about that. The Spirit doesn't hear your groanings and interpret it to the Lord. The Spirit hears your unspoken difficulty and groans in effectively an unspeakable language. It's better than words. Better than the words that you couldn't come up with because you couldn't come up with them. The Spirit finds a way to groan to the Father. And the Father, because the Spirit's interpreting, understands the groanings of the Holy Spirit. So your message isn't translated into words, no. It's translated into spiritual groanings that are grasped on a very deep level. The Amplified says that our, it's, they can't even really be uttered and heard. They're so deep. So I started thinking about my prayer life. I started assessing a little bit. And I started to wonder if maybe I was praying too much. Now you may say, Tom, that kind of seems like a silly thing to say. And, and I'm not talking really about praying for others that I do or praying for my family or my friends or the people at work but specifically the prayers that I pray to God on my own behalf. Because you see, the problem with prayer, at least for me, is that a lot of times, because I pray every day for the most part and multiple times a day often, sometimes when I'm driving in the car, I I speak to God. The challenge with that is I often become very familiar with God And I speak to him at a level that is very conversational. And I often flood him with information about my life, about my struggles, about how I think things should should go, my suggestions for how to resolve these situations, my input. And I started to ask myself, you know, maybe, maybe I should stop talking so much about my needs. 
Because I've often said to people, you know, really when it comes to my needs, I ought to start just praying a simple prayer that's simply this, that says, Lord, give me the grace to accept what you have for me today. Amen. And I don't do that. I don't suggest you get that simplified. It's important to pray for the big things in life, but I'm just speaking more specifically in terms of the flood that I put upon God of all the different things and needs that I have, especially for my own selfish life. I want to tell you a short story to kind of exemplify who I am often in my prayer life. As you may know, a pride of lions is usually about 8 to 12 female lions and one alpha lion, leader lion, and often there's a second male lion. So 8 to 12 female lions and a male lion, the leader, and often a secondary male. In this situation that we have, the alpha lion, the leader, was getting a little older. He was large. He had a black mane. Had some battle scars on his body. And the young lion spent a lot of time observing him. Laying back from the crowd, the young lion didn't interact with the females too much, just kind of sat back and observed the old lion. In almost every day, situations would come up. One day, he was watching as a bunch of vultures came in on a kill that they had eaten part of and were planning to eat the rest of it later that day. And the lion, the old lion, went over and chased those vultures away, spent a few minutes and solved the problem. Not a big problem, easy to manage. Next day or so, a, a cheetah came by kind of aggravating the, uh, the pride and a little bit more aggressive action was needed. Cheetahs aren't as big as this lion, which probably weighed about 500 pounds and kind of chased him a few times and nipped him a little bit and the cheetah went away. A few days later, though, something more serious came up. See, on occasion, there'll be a situation where you have a lone lion, a lone male that roams and has it in his mind to maybe take over this pride that's kind of established. Well, the old lion, seeing this, took up a posture of defense and aggression and went out on the plain to meet this roaming solitary lion. They circled each other for a few moments, and one thing led to another, then a fight ensued, which everyone kind of expected. The young lion sat back and observed, said, I wonder what's going to happen here as the lion is, the old guy is getting a little older and I wonder how he's going to manage himself even though he appears to be bigger and older and perhaps more experienced than this challenging lion. A lot of biting and slashing ensued. The dust was raised up around them. And finally, towards the end of the battle, the old lion got a hold of the neck of the young lion and started crushing the neck of the young lion. And this solitary lion was able to get away, wounded, scampered off into the distance. And the old lion returned to the pride 
And the young lion on a knoll watched him enter back the pride. Looked at his wounds, wondered how much longer he'd have to bite his time, hold his tongue. A few days went by, the old lion seemed like he was okay, no worse for wear. But this time, on a recent kill, a pack of hyenas, about half a dozen came, and there was a skirmish and a scuffle, and the old lion went over to chase off the hyenas, but it was a lot of activity, and they're pretty aggressive, so he backed off, and all the pride moved away from that kill, and the old lion, following them, walked back in. And the young lion approached and roared in the face of the old lion. And the old lion didn't flinch. Well, the day wore on. And as the day wore on, the young lion just felt like, man, that was wrong. We had this kill, and it should have been taken care of. It should have been protected. And the old lion didn't do his job. I don't know what his thinking was. I don't know why he didn't do his job. Seemed reasonable to chase away those hyenas, but it didn't happen. So the young lion again, as the sun was setting over the plain, went over to where the old lion sat near the water hole, and he roared in the face of the old lion, challenging the old lion. And the old lion looked up, and he roared back. And the young lion roared more forcefully in the face of the old lion. And finally, the old lion took his forepaws, grabbed the head of the young lion, and dragged him over to the pond. At this point, the pressure on the young lion's head was enough that he couldn't escape, but it wasn't crushing. And the old lion dragged the young lion over to the watering hole and positioned his head above the glassy smooth water and forced the young lion's face right above the water. And the young lion looked into the water because there was just enough light left and stared at the reflection of his face. He was shocked at what he saw. Between the massive paws of the old lion was his head squeezed together inches from the water. The young lion had no strength to get away. And he instantly understood why. Because the reflection that he saw was not the reflection of a young lion, but of a meerkat two pounds, a weasel, a prairie dog. And the old lion put the meerkat down and he scrambled away. You see, I'm the meerkat. I'm the meerkat. And maybe you are too sometimes. I lose my place in the presence of of the old lion. You see, because I get so familiar with hanging around, he allows me to hang around. And I start to think that I've got great ideas and good solutions. And I say, this should be done and that should be done. And I get into his face and I forget who I am. And instead of crushing me like the fly that I am, he takes me by the head 
and puts me before the mirror of the word. And without a word, in an unspoken gesture, I realign myself with who I am before the king. And yet, sometimes the pendulum swings. And sometimes you as a Christian feel the full burden of being that scrawny little meerkat or weasel, whatever you want to call it. And you don't even feel worthy to talk to the king of kings, the lion. And that's not right either. Because he allows you to hang out with the pride. You know, I've seen recently a couple of interesting videos, one of a small baboon that fell on the ground in the presence of a lion. The lion just took care of it. Maybe you saw it too. Another months ago, I saw another one where a little baby antelope, probably, I don't know, 20 pounds, had somehow gotten into the presence of this large lion. Not only did the large lion not kill it, but another lion came up to devour it. That lion protected this small antelope. I'm like, what? doesn't make sense. But that's who God is, you see? It doesn't make sense that he cares about me. He cares about you. Because we're this small little thing. But we have to find ourselves in our prayer life somewhere between the worthless meerkat and the pseudo-lion that we think we are. Because God cares about these little creatures called human beings that he's created in an incredible way. So if I'm not going to spend as much time praying about all my little needs, I've thought about the idea of meditation. And I've not really explored it. It means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but I thought to myself, and I've started practicing where instead of spending all that time praying for myself, I spend some time meditating on the things that God has done for me in the past. And it's amazing how that can transform your mindset because you've got this dilemma in front of you and you're like, you know what? Let me go back in my mindset and meditate on the eight other problems that were somewhat similar, similar and in some cases even bigger and worse. And all of a sudden that meditation turns into joy and thankfulness and praise where I say, Abba, Father, you're amazing. Why should I worry about this situation? I meditate on it, thinking on those things that are good and pure and just. And perhaps meditation, and I I wish I had a great answer for you here, but the brother mentioned the other night when sometimes prayer should be simply stop talking and listen. And there's been times where I've challenged you. I said, I'm not going to pray right now. I just want to hear your voice. And I've even prayed for him to speak to me audibly sometimes when I'm really hurting. He hasn't done that yet. But I'll keep asking. And I really need to keep listening. I'd like to read a a passage out of Joel chapter 3. in which we see God displaying unspoken power. Begin with verse 11. 
Assemble yourselves and come, all ye heathen, and gather yourselves together round about. Thither cause thy mighty ones to come down, O Lord, let the heathen be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there will I sit to judge all the heathen round about. Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, get you down, for the press is full, the fats overflow. For their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon shall be darkened, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. The Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth shall shake. But the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So shall ye know that I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then shall Jerusalem be holy, and there shall no strangers pass through her anymore. And if we were to read on, you'd see a few chapter, verses later, it talks about Egypt and Edom, enemies of Egypt, being made desolate. So if you allow me to paraphrase this briefly, we have a situation where God is saying, come down to the valley here. Multitudes upon multitudes coming into the valley. And there's going to be two kinds of people there. Israelites, God's people, and Edomites and Egyptians, enemies of God's people. And what does it say the Lord's going to say? Nothing. The Lion of Judah will roar. And upon the sound of that roaring, judgment will come to the enemies of God and blessing and peace and protection and defense will come to those people that are gods. I like the idea of being defended. Unspoken defense. I had a small experience many years ago. I was about seven or eight years old. I was a fledgling skier at the time. I'd already been skiing for a few years, so I know it's I was at the age where I was able to go very fast, but slow speed, control, stopping, that wasn't very important to me. And for some reason, I was on this one slope by myself, and I don't remember the collision, but there was a collision with a, uh, an adult man. And it was bad enough that we both fell, and I don't really remember whose fault it was. Might have been his, probably was mine. And I did what any reasonable seven-year-old does after a collision like that. And anyone, anytime under the age of 20 when I had a collision like that, the most important thing is to stand up quickly and make sure your equipment is okay. So that's what I did. Then assess the body. Well, in the midst of that, the older gentleman did the same thing. And he looked at me and he held up his pole. And his pole was bent at about 30 degrees, not really usable. And he was angry with me. And I remember it very clearly. And he demanded that I'd take him to my father. And I don't remember many details of this. I just know that, um, I don't know how long it took me, but I found my father behind the lodge standing in line to get tickets or something. And I was able to find him. I was very glad about that. And I walked over to my father in the line, this man right next to me, angry, upset with me. And um, the man took the bent pole, and I don't remember any dialogue. I, I believe he was telling my dad that my that he was upset with me, and look, look what your son did. And I don't remember my father saying a word, but I remember him taking the pole from the man, 
and putting it over his knee and bending it straight and holding it and thrusting it into the man's face. Not, not in a bad way like in his face, but just putting it out to the man. And I, I remember that there was a force to that motion like, take your pole and go. Problem solved. And it's kind of a humorous story, but I tell you this because I remember what it's like to be helpless and in trouble and wordlessly defended. To this day, my father was probably only about 5'7". He was like a giant that moment. Like, man, took care of business. And I didn't have to do anything. He took care of the whole situation. Defended me. So it begs the question. When the lion roars, are you going to be defended and protected because he's your king? Or will you cower in terror because he's not? There ain't no middle ground, my friends, in this situation. There's no halfway between where, oh, you know what? The enemies are destroyed, the children are saved, and those of you muddling in the middle, well, we'll talk to you later. No. It's destruction, annihilation, desolation, or protection and peace and prosperity. That's it. Sorry if you had another notion. I want you to imagine what it would be like to be standing in front of a lion and have that lion roar at you, full on, right in your face. Not a comforting feeling, not a good feeling, a terrifying feeling. Now imagine the inverse of that. Imagine you are the lion's. And you are positioned between the forepaws of the lion, and the massive head is above you, and there's a problem, and the lion roars in your defense. I got a small glimmer of that that day with the ski pole, but I guess guarantee you, this would be far more comforting, far more incredible. The song we just heard sung about being invincible, that is a Christian's invincibility. Standing in front of the four legs of the lion, you're this small two-pound meerkat, and the lion in your defense roars, and the enemies scatter. And because you know the situation, hopefully, you're not like, ah, that worked good. No, you're like, this is a great place to be, an amazing place to be, protected by my king who in an unspoken manner can make the enemies depart. I've spoken about prayer that we can't utter the Spirit utters for us. I've spoken about the Lord coming to avenge his own in an unspoken manner with a mighty roar. 
There is something, though, called the unspoken lie. And this is a disturbing one, really. Because this one is a lie that Satan uses all the time. I would propose to say that almost everyone in this room has had this lie spoken to them. But I call it the unspoken lie because there's times when Satan comes to you and says, oh, I want to tempt you with lying about this situation. I want to tempt you with this narcotic or this drug. I want to tempt you with this great party. I'm going to tempt you with this super fast car. I'm going to tempt you with this beautiful girl. I'm going to tempt you with this uh, guy that's been uh, doing curls for girls. And we kind of know that that's coming from the evil one. We kind of know that. But the, the, weird, the bad thing about this one is that this is something that's so subtle. It's so deceitful. We don't even recognize it as a lie. We think it's just a circumstance, a situation that we're in. And you're wondering, what is this lie, Tom? It's called the lie of the back burner. It's a masterpiece, it really is. It's phenomenal. That's why it gets so much use. And again, I call it unspoken because you don't even realize that it's a lie. You see, so many of us have been in the presence of the Word of God, whether it's reading it, hearing it preached, hearing a great song, being in a great class, a forum, here at camp, back at home in your churches, or maybe some of you haven't been to church too much at all, I don't know. But when something happens and you sense God calling, he offers you this thing, this gift. And for the purposes of this story, we're going to call it a meal that's in a bowl. And this meal is fully cooked, and it's called salvation. And this meal is offered to everyone that ever is in the presence of the Word of God and feels the prick of the call of God. That meal is put forth in front of you. It says, and the Lord says, eat. This is my body broken for you. Eat this meal. Because it's salvation right here, fully prepared. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to buy it. You don't have to find it. It's right here for you. And you know what? This meal is served up every year at camp. Tons. You think they serve a lot of food in the cafeteria? This meal is served year after year after year at Eastern Camp, and it's been served all week, and it's getting served right again tonight, believe it or not. Fully cooked. Perfect temperature, ready to go. And all you have to do is eat it. And here's where the problem comes in. And I did this for years. I said, meal looks great. Aroma's fine, wonderful. I get it. It's good. And I take my finger and I grab a taste. Man, 
that idea of salvation, that flavor, it's fantastic. So I take that bowl, and I'm like, man. And I walk around, maybe during with camp, but then what I do is I say, you know what? It's nice and warm. I'm going to put it right here on the back burner. For those of you that don't do a lot of cooking, that's a phrase. When you have a kitchen, you've got often your front burners and your back burners. The front burners are often bigger. That's where you're doing your major cooking, your major meals. The back burner is something that we'll take care of it later. Just keep it warm. It's going to be fine. So we take that meal. We put it on the back burner. We say, it's right there. You can still smell the aroma. It's fantastic. And I'm going to get to eating that in just a couple of minutes. Here's the problem, my friends outside of the truth. This strategy is not a good one because unless you eat the full meal in full faith, little finger dip here and there doesn't cut it. A little flavor does not put you on the side of the lion. A little flavor just puts you in greater peril because you're still part of the enemy. You haven't eaten the meal in faith saying, I want to be this, part of this. I want all of it right now. I've got to have salvation. What I need to define for you in the next few minutes, though, I need to find the kitchen because the big problem is you don't understand the kitchen. And therefore, you don't understand the lie of the back burner. So we'll take the camera from the back burner where you've put salvation, we'll pan back just a little bit. It's a small kitchen, nice little wood floor. And on the front burners, you got things cooking. Yeah. You got things cooking like, oh, this great career and this great relationship and I'm starting to make something else over here. You've got these things going really important to you and hence, that's why salvation's on the back burner because these front burner things are more important for you. That's the truth. That's the truth. So you're cooking. Lots of things on the front burners, salvation on the back burner. You're like, it's right there. You can still smell it. Awesome. And you're duped into thinking, it's all good, because any minute now, I can take that and eat it. But you're really focused on the front burners. That's the fact of the matter. Let's pan back a little further. This kitchen that you're in is actually just a relatively small room. There's enough room in there for you to walk around a little bit and there's this stove and the back burner. And what's interesting about this kitchen, it's actually not in a house. It's actually suspended by four large cables that go up as far as the eye can see. So it's kind of like this floating kitchen. You say, well, that's weird. Well, it's part of the process, you see. Because you don't understand the full picture. I need to paint it for you. Because what happens now is, as we pan back a little further, we see that the heat on the stove is actually not from... A, uh, a fire underneath the stove at all. You didn't know that? No, actually, the heat on the stove is coming from down below this suspended kitchen. Let's go back a little further. You see, this suspended kitchen on four cables is suspended over an open volcano with massive heat below. And the only reason you don't feel it is because the floor has been cleverly insulated for you. But you know who? The floor is beautifully insulated, and so this inferno below the volcano is pummeling up underneath your kitchen and creating heat for you to cook on, keeping salvation on the back burner nice and warm. 
Let's pan back a little further. You see, there's hundreds and thousands of kitchens over this active volcano, and there's lava bubbling below. You know what happens with lava? It's so hot, things vaporize before they even hit the surface. Let's pan back a little further. We see something very interesting as we go back even further. We see a cable suspended from below your kitchen over to the side of the volcano. And every little kitchen has a cable that goes over to the side of the volcano. Do you want to know what that cable's all about? Well, I'm going to tell you. The cable is connected on the side to a single lever that is your kitchen lever. And that kitchen lever has one action only. When someone pulls back on that lever, guess what happens to the floor of your kitchen? It opens and you fall all the way down into the volcano. And the tragic thing is, so many times that lever gets pulled and as the person's falling through the floor, they say to themselves, shoulda eaten the meal on the back burner. The first night of camp, Brother shared that, you know what, sometimes people go home from camp and they don't come back because of illness, death. But here's, well, that's 100% true, and I don't want to discount that at all. It's definitely true. But when I was 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, that did not phase me, that idea that I might die, because you just don't have that mindset. You just don't. But here's what you really need to understand. That lever doesn't mean you die right away. That lever just means you're out of reach of that gift that was offered. Maybe one time, maybe two times, maybe 50 times. Because there are some people that leave camp this year and you won't be back. School, life, all those things happen. And it doesn't mean that this is the only place God could call you. But you separate yourself. You don't put yourself in the pathway of the word of God. Life distracts you. And the bad thing is, before tonight, you kept saying to yourself for years, it's on the back burner, I'm good. But sooner or later, that lever gets pulled. And you know, tonight, right now, Satan is giddy, hoping to pull some levers of people in this room. He's hoping that instead of you grabbing that bowl finally and partaking of it, that you walk out again tonight and say, you know what, I'm good to go. And his fingers are twitching. Those long, long, ugly fingers just twitch. He's giddy with excitement. He's hoping that you walk out so you can pull the lever and it's over for you because you didn't take the opportunity to avail yourself of that meal because you thought you were safe with it on the back burner. That's such a bummer for you. Because up until now, you thought that bowl was always going to be there cooking away when you were ready to take advantage. You didn't know about the lever that separates you from your last opportunity.
Isaiah 53, 7 says this. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he covered not his mouth. He opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb for the slaughter, as a sheep before their shears is dumb. So he opened not his mouth. It's interesting. If you read scripture, the crucifixion of Christ, he did in fact say a few things. Sometimes he didn't say much. But he never said a word to stop the progress of what was going to happen to him. He opened not his mouth to stop the inevitable. So what's your position tonight? Are you the arrogant young lion screaming at God about all the things you need? Or do you perceive yourself as a useless weasel that God should just crush? You're neither. You're someplace in between and God loves you. Are you redeemed? Positioned between the four legs of the Lion of Judah, protected, encouraged, invincible, spiritually speaking? Or are you separate from God, one of the enemies in the valley, wondering what's going to happen next? Are you giddy in your kitchen, dancing your little fancy jig, happy that the the salvation meal is right there, thinking it's all good because it's right? No, it's not right there. You're at the edge of destruction. You're taking advantage of, of God's grace and goodness. Lever could get pulled. The work on the cross unspoken love. Do you realize the immensity of that situation? Do you realize that Christ Never once did he say, listen, for those of you watching, I'm going to be crucified. It's really not about me. It's about you guys. I really didn't do anything wrong. I'm sinless, but this is actually a plan to help you guys. Look at me. I'm your savior. No, he just took it. He shut his mouth and took it on your behalf. No explanation. Just pain and humiliation. Didn't try to cast the blame and just said, this is your fault actually, you guys, not me. He didn't try to say things to save his reputation because he looked bad up there. Criminals right and left looked bad for him. He said nothing as he took your stripes and as he took your nails. He didn't say a word as he took your punishment. And you have the audacity, the arrogance, the stupidity to take that bowl and put it on the back burner. I'm embarrassed for you. This great gift, and you think to yourself, I'll just put it there for a while. That is 
audacity at its worst. Arrogance. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The Lord shall also roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth shall shake. When the lion roars, what's your reaction going to be? Unspeakable terror? Or recognition that you are part of unspoken love beyond measure taking advantage of that bowl the work of the cross the Lord wants to defend you protect you save you make you invincible and right now He's handing you the bowl. Listen to him roar. Let's pray. God and Father, we rest in quietness. We listen. We look at you, we see your son, his hand outstretched, and with unspoken words, we see the love in his eyes, we feel the nail marks in his hands. You are bidding us to come. Lord, we pray that your children would rest in you. We pray that those that are broken would be safe in your arms tonight. Ask that you would bless those hearts that seek you and pray that they would find you. In your son's name do we pray it, Jesus Christ. Amen.